0: Welcome to The Riffraff Podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up The Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to Kelly Greenberg-Jekyll about her debut, Swan Song. We discuss the responsibility felt when portraying real-life people, allowing yourself time to let your scenes materialise, and how to maintain the fun element of writing a book.
1: The boy is eight, maybe nine, we're told. It's a sweltering day in Monroeville, the kind of day when lizards sizzle on the pavement, the kind that sears the tender pads of doggy's paws. He reclines on the porch planks, listless, watching an ice cube melt atop the griddle of his chest, translucent dribble rolling between his bony ribs. It's the kind of day when the heat seeps into your brain and sets it on fire, when you just have to stir something up or go out of your pent up heat stroke skull. He wills himself from the shade and his toy limbs follow, buttoning his shirt, trotting next door to Nell's house. He knocks on the frame of the mosquito proof screen, waiting for his friend. Mr. Lee answers in his hybrid cotton suit, a loose weave that in theory would allow Breeze to blow through, should the Breeze ever choose to cooperate. Well, hey there, Truman, he says in his molasses baritone, a lawyer's voice, trained to appeal to twelve good men and true, to the whole dang town, to be honest. He's the classiest act the boy has met, a beacon of what he thinks of as justice when it's preached by folks who wouldn't know it if it smacked them in the kisser teachers and preachers each dumber than a bucket of hair hiya mr lee might Nell be available to play he bows with formality a midget suitor pushing the fringe from his sweat-soaked forehead nail honey truman mr lee calls setting his scuffed briefcase by the door he reaches for a hair comb and straw hat turning to the kitchen mirror as the boy moves to the porch swing, the latter wondering what it might feel like to wait there for a sweetheart. He swings back and forth, his feet dangling, enjoying the creak of the metal chains, calling to mind the uneven croaks of bullfrogs at the swimming hole. Through an open window, he can hear a voice inside the house buzzing like a gadfly, presumably on the telephone hardly pausing to land on one topic before irritatingly buzzing around to the next. And I just told her to pack her things and get. But would she listen? With a man like that poking every stuffing from here to mobile and all before the wedding cake was in the icebox? Well, who could blame Eddie for running off with scrub mangram? But all the way to Nolan's? She did, though. Esther Reben saw them check in. I swear it on a stack of Bibles at the Pontchartrain Hotel on St. Charles. I tell you, Esther saw them at the Bayou Bar clear as crystal. Well, itty best watch out or she'll end up like this one next door. Knocked up without two pennies to rub together before she's old enough to order a cocktail. Dumping her brat with that bunch of spinsters. Mark my words, that boy will turn out just like his conman daddy. If you can call him a man, I'll call that a boy. Now, the boy screeches in his highest, most affected wail. He wants the voice on the phone to know. He's heard her. He's listening. Always listening. Listening and lurking. He's heard her say about him, that busybody, old Mrs. Busybody Lee. How could someone as decent as Mr. Lee have chosen such a witch? How could that biddy have spawned his precious nell? Speak of the devil. The cultish form that bolts onto the porch is as far a cry from sweetheart as the boy is from beau. The masculine to his feminine, with her bowl-cut bob, rolled blue jeans, and keds that she can run in. She's his one true friend, and he hers. She joins him on the swing, each appreciating the harmony of creaking back and forth together, swinging higher and higher. Then, from an upstairs window, the fly buzz amps to a buzz saw wail. Nell! Don't you dare leave this house with that little Nancy! Mr. Lee flashes a wary grin on his way out. Y'all best be off before you get caught. He stops the swing and gives the colt girl a quick nuzzle before hurrying to trade the wrath of the missus for the sanctity of his office. Nell and the boy exchange a glance and leap from the swing in unison, running from the porch with the speed of a hurricane. Not a minute too soon, as the figure, absurdly plump for an insect, is in the doorway, her buzzing having escalated to the baying of a hound dog. Nell Harper Lee! You come back here this minute! You got a ballet lesson at 2.30? But they're off, making their getaway into the fields, onto dirt roads outside town, into treehouses and under porches, listening to unsuspecting voices they will both later repeat to one another, still later rehash in their prose. Sometimes the boy has Nell take dictation, weaving tidbits into stories as he orates. Sometimes he types, on an old Remington with keys that stick that he found in his cousin's attic. As he furiously types that very night, the open window scant comfort in the sticky stillness, he relishes his revenge on old Mrs. Busybody. She'll get hers. He'll teach her to talk that way about...
0: Hello Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the Riff Riff Podcast. Thank you, I'm so excited to be here. Oh my goodness, I feel like I've been waiting for this day for months. Me too. (laughs) Um, So please can you start with telling us something about your something, everything about
1: your incredible debut swan song. Oh goodness, well it is the product of ten years of research and four and a half years of writing. Um, I'm going to try to get faster with book two. (laughs) Um, but Donna Tartt takes 10 years to write a book, so yeah. I'm in good company. Correct. Um, and Truman took many decades to not write this his version of this book, so again, it was appropriate for, for this particular one. Um, I feel like there's a version of this book that I could have written in about a year and a half, but I really wanted to write the version that would do the book Truman Never Completed Justice. So it is the story of Truman Capote's relationship with these very wealthy and powerful women who he called his swans. And they were Babe Paley, who was married to Bill Paley, the one of the first network executives uh, in the early days of television. Um, Slim Keith, who had been married to Howard Hawks, the film director. Leland Hayward, the Broadway producer, who produced *South Pacific*, *The King and I*, *The Sound of Music*. Uh, C. Z. Guest, who was married to a champion polo player and a relative of Winston Churchill. Uh, Lee Radziwell, who was Jackie Kennedy's is Jackie Kennedy's younger sister. Agnelli, who was married to the head of Fiat, uh, the chairman of Fiat Cars, Gianni, who was a notorious rake. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm forgetting someone Gloria Guinness, oh, the elusive Gloria, that's why, Uh, who came from Veracruz, Mexico and was very, very uh, tight lipped about her mysterious past. And um, she Began life as a taxi dancer and moved through husbands up through being a countess and and a princess and a Nazi spy and finally married Lowell Guinness of the Guinness Brewery family. So Truman had identified these women as really what he saw as novelistic heroines, and he he knew so many wealthy women and beautiful women and actresses, and uh, he he specifically chose these six, however, to be swans because he saw each of them as brilliant acts of self-creation. He thought that any one of them could have been the subject of their own novel. So he, in 1975, publish extracts from what was to be his magnum opus, Answered Prayers, that he had talked about for decades. Uh, and in doing so, he betrayed the confidences of all of these women who he had known and loved for the better part of three decades. Um, And it was tantamount to detonating a literary grenade. Um, He had decided in 1955 that he wanted to write his Proustian opus and he befriended Babe, Slim, Marilla, CZ, Gloria and Lee with the intention of using them as subjects. But it gets tougher and tougher to betray your closest friends the deeper those relationships go and so he thought in 1975 that he would stave off the hounds. He had taken about a million dollars worth of advance money from Random House. He had sold the film rights to a book that didn't exist to Fox. He was really up against it. He was eight years delinquent delivering a syllable. (laughs) And so he decided to publish extracts as he had done with In Cold Blood, as he had done with Breakfast at Tiffany's, just to kind of buy himself some time. And he knew that they'd be mad but he thought that they adored him so much and that he was so indispensable that they would forgive him and in this he grossly miscalculated. Mm.
2: Can I also just take a second to appreciate their names? We we do not have names like that anymore and we are all the poorer for it. They're pretty great. Slim. Mm. It's so evocative of the era as well in which it all takes place like those names just bring to mind they bring them to life well, before the, the, you've even met
0: them the whole book is about bringing to bringing like the, that era to life isn't it you know like it's um it's it's so you know there's Jackie Kennedy in there and there's like Ernest Hemingway and like there's some just, great cameos yeah and, it, it's, and it's, it's you know like it's it's so it's so cool to read about that Era, and you've you've created that fantastically. Thank fantastically, you. Fantastically,
1: yeah. Well, these women really were the iconic women of their age, and you know, there's a reason that the cameos are the greats of the 20th century because they, they ran in those circles and it is amazing that slim was very close friends with ernest hemingway and you can six degrees of separation that back to truman and the agnellis went yachting with the kennedys and then that links to lee radziwell who was the younger sister of jackie so it's it's amazing how interconnected they are yeah It's incredible that no one's told this story in this way before.
2: When did the magic strike and you thought this is the story that I have to
1: tell? Well it's interesting, I had always been obsessed with Capote My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was from the South, from a little town near New Orleans, and she was a colloquial storyteller, and so it was a lot of, you know, rocking chairs and porch chat and sort of that Southern poetry, which I think Truman has in all of his work, even when it's, you know, the story is an urban one or a crime non-fiction crime novel. Uh, so I, I always loved Capote and I very early on read the Gerald Clark biography of him and the George Plimpton biography, which is an oral biography. It's meant to sort of uh, give the sense of being at a cocktail party with Capote's coterie and walking through the room and hearing each of them talk about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I from reading the biographical material, I just fell in love with the idea of these women. They were just all so compelling and so fascinating. And each of them, as he saw them, they do have the they're the stuff of great fiction. And all of them, except for Gloria, have either group biographies uh, or individual biographies, or Slim has an autobiography. So I read all of anything that I could get my hands on. Um, Gloria, who does not have one, was a regular columnist for Harper's Bazaar. So I would, you know, troll eBay and find vintage copies to sort of get to her voice. So for years, they were in my head, and I knew that I wanted to do something with them. Um, My background is in screenwriting and directing. And I just knew that this story was too big to be a film or really even a television series although I do think there's a, ver- a version of it that could be that um, and I was in a villa in Provence Lovely. Uh, <laughs> How apt? Yeah, like you do <laughs> and I was there because I won a fellowship for um, a very creative Tolstoy adaptation that I had adapted the Kreutzer Sonata and mixed it with the facts of his actual marriage and his letters and his wife's letters and Anyway, in this villa, it's going to sound terribly grand, were, were artists, filmmakers, and novelists who I very much admired, uh, one of whom was Michael Landace, who was, a, was and is a hero of mine. Um, Alan Lightman, as well, who wrote Einstein's Dreams. And they were very encouraging. They asked why I was writing literary adaptations for the screen and not writing literary fiction. Mm. And I think... It was the first time that I thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe I do have permission to explore this Mm -hmm. as a work of literary fiction. But I then took 10 years, that was in 2006, and I took 10 years researching it and plotting and trying to figure out what I would do with the story. And I think, as I said before, Truman had started the the early drafts of answered prayers his initial notes they began right around the time that he's writing Tiffany's mid 50s and he didn't publish the bombshell extracts until 75 so and he put it aside to write in cold blood um, so this really was this this big life project of his and I thought if I tell a version of this story I don't just want to tell it in a straightforward manner I want to really get to the psychological and emotional heart of what Truman was trying to do why he couldn't do it and the psychological damage that this process really it, it destroyed all of their lives mm. so
0: yeah and like the, the way that you also feed in the way his motivations, you know, because you can't, you can't help but be a little bit like, you know, he's chosen to manipulate these women, basically. Like, I, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt that he loves them, I don't adored them, adored them, yeah. And but like, but then he, but then he went and he went against his word, didn't he? And like, and but that you kind of. You know, he said said specifically to Babe, I'll never do anything to hurt you. But then I suppose his intention was to reveal her husband as being a bad dude rather than...
1: He thought he was defending her honor in a way, but again, miscalculated. And I also think that this is someone who, as a child, was a writer who always knew that this was his calling and thought of writing as a, a sacred art form. And so it does raise the question, what responsibility does the writer have to their subjects? And I think on one level, he thought that he was exempt, that he was he was such a prodigy and he was such an artist and what he was doing was Proustian and that he could get away with it, that that because the art was so great mm. that they would forgive the act.
2: Mm. And sort of following on from that, really, um, this is a reimagining of an event that as it might have happened there are obviously you know you mentioned in your research there are some concrete you know examples we've got biographies we've got autobiographies but a lot of it had to be imagined and talking of sort of responsibility where did you draw the line between you know going into complete all-out imaginative fiction and sticking to the concrete
1: facts and building on those I would say that everything in the book uh is is based on a sliver of truth and then it was imagining from those leaping off points what the conversations would be what what the environment was like but i feel like i by the time i finally came to imagine them i knew them so well that I, I really felt that I had the authority to to sort of get into the headspace of each of them. Um, and it's very interesting, I, I first started to develop it when I sat down to begin the writing process in earnest four and a half years ago, and I was doing a six-month master class that uh, was a joint, joint collaboration between UEA and The Guardian. And I was working with an amazing novelist, James Scudamore, and very early on he said, I, I had, I should say, I initially had the idea that the Truman would not be a narrator in the book at all, and that th- the book would be told from the alter- alternating points of view of the six women. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be close third person, and I knew exactly what it would be. And very early on, Scudamore said, you do know just because you don't call them we doesn't mean that's not what they're functioning as. And so it, he really identified in using prose as gossip, as as this this collective choral gossipy voice, that it really, in a way, was functioning much like Jeffrey Eugenides' The Virgin Suicides. You know, it's it's used very differently here, but this idea of a a collective voice, and it really did emerge and mm-hmm. completely ruined my plans. <laughs> <laughs> and I I resisted it for about two weeks, and then I thought, okay, let's just see what happens. And they took over, and they and they. Became the we yeah. of the book. Um, then, very interesting. I had decided that they they would we would only know Capote through them. That it was a very good idea in theory. That as he had manipulated them and used them as subjects of his art, we would we would only see him through their eyes mm-hmm. and through their art and their narrative, and he very early on elbowed his way into the book and demanded to, to be there. <laughs> and initially, he came in the form of his, his child self, the, the boy character in the book. And throughout, that's how he's presented, whether he is the 10-year-old boy, the eight-year-old boy, or the 59-year-old boy. Mm. And then the third thing that happened that was interesting with the manner of telling is, late in the process, the collective that was so strong throughout demanded that they, they each splinter into solos, um, which I didn't expect, and I thought, my God, really, another thing I have to deal with that I didn't plan? And so that, that was something that happened as late, I mean, long after the book sold, and, you know, it was. Uh, I think my deadline for my final, you know, what, what I thought would be the final draft, but wasn't, was in late May, and this, this was probably mid-April, and so at that point, I had to go to my editor and say, okay, they really want to be solos and I have to figure out how I'm going to do this. And so then I, I started to explore almost, you know, each of the solo chapters became slivers of the novellas that I imagine Truman would have at some point wrote of, about about each of them had had he gotten around to doing it. And so then with the solo chapters, musical themes came into it. And each of the songs of the swans relate somehow to their background and their their personal narratives musically wow
2: <laughs> listeners to this <laughs> listeners to this podcast regular listeners may have heard me talk about the west wing before because i am a huge west wing fan amy's looking at me like what are you doing oh, stop uh, talking it's not comedy, <laughs> it's not comedy. <laughs> but that's exactly it's so interesting because and aaron sorkin's one of my favorite writers oh he's amazing and that's exactly how the west wing started that originally The people who don't know what the West Wing is—it's about the president of the United States and his his cabinet, essentially his his White House staff. And um, Martin Sheen, who plays the president, was never supposed to be in it. It was always supposed to be told by the staff closest to him. Oh, I didn't know that. And then in the first episode, he had such a presence that he, exactly as you said, elbowed his way into the script, and it became a very different beast. Do you think that writers should? be Always be able to keep an open mind or at least plan and because you. I really should
1: finish the sentence before I start asking a question. <laughs> it's a real annoying it's habit It's a tough of mine. book to talk about. I <laughs> feel like I have a bunch of hanging sentences already. It's it's
2: tough. Because you had, obviously, a plan already, but then you said, you know, you're saying that it evolved as you were writing it. Do you, how much do you think authors need to plan, and how much do you think they need to be open-minded to a, an entire new character coming in, or a new plot point, or... or a new way of narrating it. Well, yeah. in,
1: in my view, the book tells you what it wants mm. to be. And I know that sounds a bit, you know, hippy-dippy, nice but... <laughs> <laughs> it does. It, t- it demands. It's. It, it will come in and say, "This is now where I'm going," and it's interesting. I've, I've never been a writer who can outline, who can come in. I'll I'll have a mental game plan, and as as I just mentioned, it completely got scuppered in this this case, but. Um, I've never been someone who sits down and, you know, makes an outline or makes a spreadsheet. I was listening to Stu Turton talk about Seven Deaths the other day, and he said, you know, he had, to, he had for that book, you would have to. But he knew where every, you know, he had a spreadsheet where yeah, he like knew where every second, much, character yeah. was in a two minute, you know, within two minutes throughout the whole book. Um, I did, that first year, I made an initial outline of what I thought Swan Song would be, and I just basically tore it to shreds because... I got the very good advice uh, that everything that was great about the book could not have been discovered in in an outline. Mm. That it needed to just grow and be and especially because it is a voice, a, a book of, of voices of, mm. of this choral voice and these individual voices that I couldn't have heard them singing or, or speaking if I had held myself to, you know, a, a, a rigid spreadsheet or outline it just wouldn't have happened it would have been a very different book it would have I think it would have been a linear book which it certainly is not and I wouldn't have discovered as much as as I did and and what I really feel is is the heart of the book
0: I'm interested in knowing so you said that you it was the product of 10 years research yeah and then four years writing or was the research still going on when the writing started and also like did how did you know like how where where do you draw the line on research like that? You know, like you could have kept on reading about that forever probably. It's such an interesting topic, they're such interesting characters. Where where do people where should people draw the line?
1: My last draft that I turned in that went to be typeset was was turned in on November the fifteenth of this 2017, I think I was researching until November the 14th at midnight. I, <laughs> I mean, so it 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 was ongoing. It was just, it was always there. It was always, in fact, it was very funny for uh, part of this. Uh, my husband is an actor, and we were on tour. He was doing Mike Bartlett's King Charles the Third, and so we were all over uh, England and then Australia. And so I, I had a giant almost body bag sized suitcase full of research books and they just you know I, I would drag them from city to city and just <laughs> set up shop and each week in a different place so it was was appropriately for a j- book about the jet set not nearly as glamorous as, as their jet setting but it was written nomadically for part of it um, but so the ten years of research that's before I started writing so um, I, I would say the, the research and the, the initial idea was 2006, and I started really writing in 2014. And when it comes to Capote,
2: who's obviously, you know, such an important part of your book, there's so much out there. There's film versions, there's biographies, there's endless comment on Capote. He's such an interesting and rich person. You know, character to write about, mm. but he's—he re- was a real person. Mm. How much responsibility did you feel to him, to his estate, to kind of portray him in any particular way, and to keep him fresh so that you know Capote fans aren't getting another version that they've seen before?
1: Um, he sort of became my alter ego and my imaginary friend. So I did not <laughs> I, I, I didn't feel that way about him personally. I feel like I knew him so well. I was doing that. Anyway, what I did feel a great responsibility to was his prose. I wanted Swan Song to reflect his prose. To I mean, there there's so many nods to his work stylistically throughout. Um, so that was the great responsibility. And also, you know, we we don't have answered prayers. He after the fallout, you know, he would he would take around a giant manuscript and orate from it he would read people extracts and no one actually saw that i mean it could have been you know the first two pages could have been typed and the rest could have just been blank sheets mm-hmm. but he did go around and he would tell the same episodes he would say i'm going to i'm going to read you the chapter Called bloody blah, and he would each time to each person tell the exact same version. So it wasn't. I mean, he 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 did write these chapters. What happened to them? We don't know. He didn't complete it because obviously he, as a result of being so heartbroken at losing five out of these six women, he, you know had a terrible spiral of, of self-destruction as a result uh... and never completed it Um, he did go around and give people keys toward the end of his life and they would say what's this and he would say answered prayers and they would say, well, "What does it open?" And he would sometimes suggest that it was a safety deposit box, but not tell them where. He sometimes would say it was a train locker and a depot. So after his death, he was a famous pack rat, and they could not find the the chapters that people had heard him orate. But th- the pages were never found. I mean, I I love to think that one day we will find them. But I I wanted to really write. A version that honored what we know were his intentions. Mm. So um, it's very interesting. The, the, there are nods to to the penultimate chapter and and the last chapter of Swan Song. Basically, I I take oh and a chapter in the middle as well. I take very specific details from what he said he intended or that he wanted and and pepper swan songs chapters with that. I also had a really crazy idea. We were in Bath. Uh, we spent summer before last in Bath, and I was finishing a version it was just before we went out. Um, to, to We went directly to Hutchinson. Um, Jacosta Hamilton was always the editor for this book, and so <laughs> it was. we just went straight to her, and it, it was a match made in heaven. She is a swan, as is <laughs> my agent Carolina. Um, but I had decided that summer that I was going to write the missing last chapter. Ooh. And I just sat around and tortured myself for 2 months and finally my husband said, "He couldn't write it. Why do you think you're going to be able to?" And in trying to talk my way through why I couldn't do it, I realized that what I could do is write him verbally telling it. Because again, we're back to these voices and and you know, the choral aspect of it all and so uh, you know, there's there is a very specific episode that Capote was obsessed with uh, that he had planned to put in one of the chapters of Answered Prayers and it's based on a real event where an editor for Vogue uh, was had worked at the magazine for over 50 years and one day went in and they came and took all of the office furniture out from under her and fired her and so she was, you know, in her 80s, and this was what she had always done. And she went home, and she didn't leave her apartment for several weeks. And then she jumped from her apartment ledge. And so, I take that knowing that that's something Capote wanted to work in, and mm. and sort of tell a version of it. So, yes, wow. there was there was a great responsibility to to answered prayers and to give some sort of a different take on it. There, I think that their stories and the story of the book are so enmeshed that I couldn't tell one without the other.
0: You, sorry. <laughs> to ask you questions at the no, same time. There's, there's obviously, like, there's so much going on, like, in terms of, like, characters, in terms of narrative voice, in terms of having to represent things from Capote's past and getting his voice perfect. Like, there's... How, how do you keep yourself... Did you write each character individually? How did you keep yourself on track? I mean, obviously, they're very distinct personalities. There's no doubt about that. But how did you... Um, how did you make sure that they stood alone? Because, you know, when there's that many voices crowding kind of mm. one book, like, how, what sort of techniques did you use to kind of make sure that you? kept those very distinct?
1: Well, Truman was always my touchstone. Again, I, I think it's the the southern storyteller mm. in me that whenever I was at sea, all I had to do was write a Truman scene and I was back on form. Okay. So he was my go-to. In fact, my, my husband jokes, what am I going to do with book two when I don't have Truman to go to to <laughs> cure my writer's block? <laughs> Probably to be writing scenes no one will ever see that have nothing to do with the next book. And just then giving everyone keys <laughs> as to where they're going to find. Exactly, <laughs> hiding it. Um, but with, with the solo chapters i think because they became so linked to those those music musical references those that it, they were just always very separate and very clear and when i was writing each of those chapters i would I would write, you know, I would spend a month and a half and it would just be Morella every day and I would be blaring Don Giovanni from the speakers and driving everyone mad. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, then it was very easy to then switch into, you know, Slim is, uh, her chapter involves her friendship with Lauren Bacall and the devastating breakup of of her marriage. And, you know, Lauren Bacall was discovered by her uh, Bacall's entire screen persona is slim. It's her dialogue. It's her clothing. It's I love those
0: bits when you get that scri- the scripts in there and stuff with like her sort of turns of phrase that are really famous quotes. Yes. And like,
1: oh my God, yes. I love those bits. <laughs> yes. And CZ, who you know was a rebellious debutante who really did have a life that lent itself to sort of the acts of a-, a vaudeville show. And she had actually been in the Ziegfeld Follies. And she had had time in Hollywood as a starlet. And she had then gone to Mexico and been Diego Rivera's nude model yeah. I, it's just nuts if you you know honestly if, if you made it up out of thin air you would probably it. get the note mm, yeah. it's not realistic um, but of course because of that very it was a very natural thing to make her chapter a follies and that that you know, we sort of get to to have a snippet of each of those acts of her life so and with Gloria's, that's the one that I thought that someone was going to tell me that I was crazy um, hers is a Corrido, which is a traditional Mexican folk ballad. It's a biographical, epic, folk biography, if you will. And so that's the one that I honestly thought I would take it into my editor and they would just, Jocasta and everyone at Hutchinson would think I was insane. And they loved it. Would, I didn't
0: know that's what you were doing. <laughs> so but right now I'm kind of thinking back to all the different chapters and how, like, I feel like I need to read them again to, with that kind of like knowing that.
1: Well, well that's, that, what were doing. that's what was fun. So I think mm-hmm. I was so distracted by the fun of it that their voices were very distinct. The Marilla chapter, if you go back, mm-hmm. All of the dialogue is from Don Giovanni. It's from the libretto yeah. from oh, Don wow. Giovanni. Oh, my so, God. I think really I, I think I was just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so. And right. thus the ten years.
2: Yeah, I'm going to read all over again. And I'm going to have to go and listen to an entire opera. So,
0: <laughs> Jesus. Um, one thing. Sorry, Rosie. I'll let you speak in a second. <laughs> one thing that like is incredibly, incredibly clear is how much fun you found this. Oh yeah. Like I mean, that is like complete. And and obviously, what a fun book to write. But. Like
1: how do often you, torture? Often, but, I, I'm going to
0: say like there's got to be there has got to be times when you thought what the fuck am I doing this is a this is a lot to take on and I like, can tell you my my <laughs> moment of
1: of madness the almost didn't happen chapter and it's probably my favorite thing in the book is the penultimate penultimate chapter look like, I can't even say it it's so uh, the trauma is coming back um, I I always knew that I I wanted this this mad wild sort of literary acid trip of a penultimate chapter and i would sit down honestly i probably sat down twice a week for 4 years and i would start writing it and then i would you know get Two paragraphs in and say, nope, that's not it. I thought you were going to say, I take acid. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? It's <laughs> like a different. You never know, it could have worked. Well, it would have been fun. <laughs> um, so I would sit down and then you know, say, I just knew that I wasn't ready to write it. Mm. And it got to the point where I was in France and it was late, late August, and um, it sounds very romantic. My, my my husband and I have a crumbling farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in France, but it's actually a bit crazy-making, and it, it sounds very picturesque, but, you know, cut to a shot of holes in the roof and owls flying in, and, you know, so I'm <laughs> in mean, you know, the, the middle of nowhere. It was my mother's birthday, my parents are in Texas, and uh, Hurricane Harvey was hitting my hometown of Houston. So we're, of course, trying to tap into the rural French... and. In- in- Internet, and we're seeing pictures of you know down the street from my parents' house, underwater people in boats. I mean, it was really thankfully my parents were fine and the house is fine, but it was it was really it was sort of this stressful couple of days where we were very concerned. And so I was trying to write this, and and my editor was starting to say, you know, I don't think we need that chapter. I think I think you've done it. I think you've done it with the last chapter. And I kept saying, no, the book is not the book without this chapter and i knew that i had planted seeds earlier and that everything would pay off one last time before then the last chapter is its own separate entity but i knew that this had to exist but i i just i was up against it it felt very trumanesque and then suddenly in the middle of the night during the hurricane and the owls flying in and the craziness i thought oh my god it's swan lake it's the dying swan swan. it's the end the last scene in Swan Lake and so I quickly on my bad French internet uh, pulled up Matthew Bourne's production of Swan Lake with the, the vengeful male swans you know pecking mm. and you know violently attacking and I thought my god it's in a weird way, that's what this chapter is. And I sat down and I started typing and I typed for a day and I haven't changed a syllable of that chapter since. Oh my God,
0: that is so oh, cool. That is the best time I've ever had. <laughs> that
1: is so, that's so cool. It eluded me for four years and wow. then just in a mad rush. And I just looked at it and I thought, okay, that's, that's what you wanted to be. And you weren't ready to arrive until... The madness of oh my God, it's so Kelly, you've <laughs> won the riffraff. That's it. Let's pack up. Let's go home. That's it. Uh, game over. <laughs> you've done, you've done oh God, it.
2: I love that. Um, I, I don't know how to follow that, but I'm gonna try. Okay. Um, you mentioned Capote lost five out of the six women after revealing yes. their secrets, but he, as you say in the book, Cz, I think Cz, I'm in English. Cz, Cz, oh, it so <laughs> um, says writers write and one can't be surprised if they write what they know a lot of writers do want to tap into their own personal experience and and write about what's happened to them but of course that does pull in people in your life and you then have to put them into your text I know that I've shied away from doing it in the past mm. because I think it's not my you know I it's not my story to tell they wouldn't want me to write that, blah, blah, blah. What's your advice for anyone listening who thinks, I've got this amazing story, but in order to tell it, I'm going to have to pull in somebody that I know and love and tell that part of their life as well?
1: Gosh, I I don't know. I think, I think we go back to this idea of what is the artist's responsibility, and I think that there are a number of answers to that, and I think it has to do with sort of your your moral barometer, it has to do... I mean, what's interesting about Capote is it had worked for him in the past. If you think about it, he spent six years in Kansas, everyone in in cold blood, he he knew the killers, he knew the, the lawmen, he knew everyone in that town. And so that that was obviously the source of his great masterpiece and success. Uh, Holly Golightly in *Tiffany's* really is half and half Truman himself and Nina, his mother, uh, who started life as uh, her her name was Lily May, and it's no accident that Holly's real name is Lula May. Uh, so it I think because he had so often portrayed his mother himself, um, he had used his own personal details in fiction and had been nothing but lauded and applauded, I honestly think that he he thought on some level that if the art was enough, that if if this book could be the masterpiece that he saw in his mind, that they would forgive him. And he used to say, I can see it. I see all of them. I see all of the characters. I know what this book looks like. And he just, in the end, couldn't do it. But I think that's also very interesting that despite the inflammatory extracts, in the end, he, he couldn't continue to do it. Um, he did talk a lot about wanting to write a envelope about Babe in the end, uh, that he was going to call heliotrope. Again, all of these things find their way into Swan Song. Um, so I think I think he was morally vexed by this this question and in the end it destroyed him. So mm. um
2: Mate, take from that what <laughs> you
1: will. Yeah, so
0: i writing about everyone I know. <laughs> <Yeah>, Proceed <Pristine laughs> with, with <in> caution. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: well yeah, oh my goodness. Um, so um your background is in screenwriting. Yes. Um and we you know, how do you think that that kind of knowing
1: that kind of discipline inside out has helped you with this? Um, I think that if you spend enough time, you know, devoted to the art of screenwriting and, and you're any good at it, dialogue comes very easily. I know a lot of writers who, who struggle with dialogue or or find it a chore or dread it, and I feel like the voices come very, very easily. Um, and I, I think you just have a sort of an innate sense of, of dramatic structure that if I overanalyze, I probably would never be able to. Do it again, <laughs> yeah. so um and I've always I, I even with screenwriting, I was never one to outline. Um, there was a great interview once with Meryl Streep where someone was trying to get her to talk about her process, and her response was, I know it will sound strange, I feel like they're all just souls and it's my job just to let them out and let them be, meaning her characters, and I, I feel very much that way about writing. Again, it sounds much more sort of airy-fairy than than I am, yeah, like, but very, I love it.
2: It's very Liz Gilbert, isn't it, that idea that the ideas are out there that, and you just need to channel them.
1: And get out of their way. Yeah.
2: Yeah and get out of Capote's way as he elbows his way
0: to the <laughs> yeah. front of I love your that. but also like you know wait until the scenes are ready for like they're ready to be formed because you know like sometimes things you don't know what you're doing until it's happening or you know you could be stuck on something and you just need to let your subconscious mind deal with it while you just
1: The solo chapters yeah, the solo yeah. chapters never would have existed and they really were where each swan came to life mm-hmm. um and had I sat down and made a plan Regarding those chapters, that would never have happened. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting, and you know, when they arrive, they're they're like friends. Like I really do feel that when I would move on to each of the next one, you know, each next solo chapter, uh, I would miss the one that I had I had just left. And so yeah. it was it was great. I think what's so great about them is you know you do feel like they're your friends as well, and like
0: and, and knowing all of their flaws and all of the things about them that like make them human beings, despite their kind of like. You know, show-offy lives and stuff like that. Like you feel you give so much information that you 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 love all of them. Even and Truman is like. There's times when I'm furious with him, (laughs) but like at the same time, he's fabulous and he's talented and like and he's passionate and like you know it's it's and he's lovely
1: and charming. I mean, everyone that knew him, I mean, all not only the women but the husbands just adored him. He just you know anyone that ever talked about him said he was just the most charming and lovely and considerate and wonderful and witty person. to be in a room with. And, you know, what's, what's also great about the women is they've sort of been lopped together in history as Capote swans. Mm-hmm. They were all friends, some of them closer than others, but they ran in the same circles. Um, it's it's so fun to sort of see the pairings that Babe and Slim had a very close relationship. Uh, Babe and Gloria had an intense rivalry, but also a friendship um, that was very close. They would vacation together, you know, but they've, they've all been sort of lopped together in history and and by their association with truman and what i loved about the solo chapters is it allows each of them to reclaim their own voices and their own stories and because each of them was so unique and brilliant and ahead of their time I mean they you know in addition to being fabulous and iconic and tastemakers and the wives of these very powerful men each of them I mean they were they were extraordinary they all were you know either editors for Vogue or Morella was a photographer for Vogue that worked with Blumenfeld and uh, CZ was sort of the precursor to Martha Stewart she was the first person to sort of later in life she she started a line of gardening equipment that was branded with her name um you know Slim basically saved countless Broadway productions and gave us Lauren Bacall I mean each of them just it's they're they're they were so ahead of their time and I think we've forgotten that so to to let them function as the collective that they were known to be but then explore them as as soloists really for lack of a better word it's it's that was a great privilege and and joy and and it was yeah that's one of the things i'm i'm the most proud of you smashed it yeah and and we have to ask what's next are you writing book two um is my agent listening to this i (laughs) no no definitely not Uh, i was i In theory, I was supposed to um, be well into book two by now, but um, I've, I don't know. I think what's so interesting, I actually had written on my calendar on, we came back from the States uh, to London on January, I think it was like the 15th. And I wrote on my calendar, the 16th start book two Mm -hmm. Uh, and with the best of intentions. I mean, I know what it is. I know what books two and three will be. Um, Very different. Very similar. uh, Same time frame, but very, very different. So yeah. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I I sort of just as as a person, I I am just in love with that sort of mid century period. I kind of come alive in you know 1930, and for me, everything kind of ends in 1975. So (laughs) I have no interest in the era into which I was born. Um, But uh, so I yeah, I had don't think I ever really considered how emotionally invested in this narrative I would still be this many months after it's done and dusted I mean I I haven't written a syllable since the 15th of November but you know no one tells you that going through the even the typesetting process is arduous. You know, I mean, we...
0: I really love the font, by the way. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well,
1: there were so many challenges. So we had, you know, I mean, there's bits of play text. There's bits of screenwriting. There are different fonts for different things. There's a typewriter with keys that stick. So you have to always make sure the R's and S's were in bold. So So there were so many sort of typesetting challenges that that took us until March. And then even promoting the book and and just sort of letting your friends go. I think I haven't been ready until very recently to, to dive into that next world of voices. And again, until they start talking to me, I feel like I'm imposing something on a story. And it, it, yeah, I think the story has to come to you and it's just now starting to so it will it will be fun but it will be tough because i'm still you know i, I don't know if one ever moves on from 10 years of, mm. of of an endeavor that's that's been so really profoundly meaningful
2: well we can't wait to see what's next but for the time being thank you so thank much you so kelly
1: much.
0: thank you Um, Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening we're so incredibly grateful so please do let us know what you think what you'd like more of and any debut authors you'd like to hear from also it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve the riffraff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards come say hey at the-riffraff.com